Hello again, and welcome to Theft of Moon. This episode is part of a story continued from the previous episode, entitled Necrobotic Manufacturing Systems Review 03246 5PC. If you need to catch up, Theft of Moon number 5 is the entirety of the story so far. Our protagonist, Eddie, has gone into the underworld, where manufacturing takes place, and has come home again physically safe but mentally unsound. Let's see what his wife thinks about this whole mess. A man sits in a chair, staring at the wall. Jill ran her hands behind her back and pondered at the shipping container in the backyard. She had requested reading material about the founding of the necropolis and the world it replaced. Instead of the usual commodity available for pickup message, the household message board had displayed a note saying that she would have to make a decision about the mode of delivery. Perplexed, she went to the office where they told her that the requested reading material would not easily fit in her living area. She asked if they could split it up. They said sure. This morning, an industrial beetle had lumbered into the backyard and gently set the huge steel box between two blossoming nectarines, without cracking so much as a twig. She'd been planning to put a rosemary bush there, but had never gotten around. She cracked the seal off the shipping container with the back of an axe head and swung the doors open. The smell of fresh paper and ink was overpowering. A wall of books loomed over her, neatly stacked, mechanically sorted by size to fill every last bit of space in the container. Joe's first thought was that she had not asked for the records in alphabetical order, but she realized she couldn't read all of it in a lifetime anyway. These weren't original copies, and she felt no guilt as she started to knock down the columns and spread the books out on the garden dirt. She peeked at one titled Advancements in Biotechnology Volume 14. She picked up another called Philosophical Achievements of the Pre-Construction Political Party. She dug her way through the container, hauling out books and dumping them in the garden. As she began to work in earnest, unease and suspicion grew tangled in her chest. She threw herself into the task, and a gross sensation crawled across her skin she got her first look at the back wall of the box. The shipping container contained books that all started with the letter A. This could be a tiny fraction of even just material that all started with the same letter. She was going to have to be more specific with her request. The Great Construction changed the world completely. She had essentially asked for all records from the last 5,000 years. Worse, it changed the world largely through better record keep. So she had asked for all records of the most documented era of civilization, and everything that came after. She had never really thought about it too hard before. It had always been a backdrop for the things that actually interested her. Since Eddie had come home, however, the backdrop had become the story. She kicked a pile of books, and as they shifted, her eyes hit a cover image. A smiling young person with a wool sweater and a leather backpack stood in a mountain hollow, next to a rushing stream and a dark rectangular wound in the mountain. It was the same passage Eddie had taken. She read the title to herself, About Time, Interviews with the Political Engineers of the Great Construction. She flipped it open to a random page and started skimming. In those days, you couldn't trust anyone. You saw familiar faces every day, betrayed and lying dead in the center of town. Children turned on their parents, whipping and berating them in front of crowds. Spouses turned on each other, accusing each other of acts of depravity and evil intentions. It didn't matter whose side you were on. The closer victory got, the less it meant. People think we wanted it that way because we understood what war was and we set out to win. I tell you now, if you gave me the choice to relive those days, I'd rather drink bleach. 
Anyone could be an assassin. Everyone was a spy. If you had a secret in those days, you could not even think it. Love was a brutal slogan. It felt like the end of the world. This was in the last years of the struggle. A stupid name, as if all of time was one thing before and something else afterward. As if our victory was anything different than any other. Another moment in the world. Part of the eternal procession of mundane victories won by dumb rocks and brilliant doctors. We struggled, and something that resembled us emerged into a new day. Now that I'm old, I don't see my reflection in the world so easily. Now that I'm ageless and do not struggle, these things carry less weight. It's so ridiculous to try to explain the desires and horrors of a world only a few of us can remember. Today, if you want something, you ask for it. If you're restless, you go. Your loneliness and dissatisfaction is your own. Only your death is paid on credit. Can you even imagine being on the factory floor? Every day, 12 hours a day for the rest of your life. Then whoosh, they toss you in an oven and you float out over the neighborhood of shitty shotgun houses full of people too tired to raise their kids. You settle as ash on the landscape and help contribute to your grandchildren's asthma. That was life, and nobody questioned it. What else could it be? Some people got rich, but the only way to do that was to make things harder for the folks back home. Not everyone had the stomach for that. A lot of people, they told themselves they were happy. And there were happy moments, yeah. Laughter, for instance. People don't laugh like they used to. It seems to me that laughter exists as a corollary to terror. Everyone's funnier when there's a gun to their head. We would rise and work and work and go home, and on holidays and funerals we would laugh. You'll never know how it felt to laugh in those days. A feeling like getting in front of a rushing freight train with your naked body and bringing it to a halt with your own hands. Our laughter was murderous. We could eat the sun. You don't even know what the fuck a freight train is, do you? Does the body remember the things we did? Of course it does. Of course it doesn't. The mind is special because it's in the brain, you know? That's where we've drawn the line. When we anesthetize a patient, the pain still exists, but the, but the mind doesn't hear about it. It doesn't create a record of its having existence. The body bears all the traumatic consequences of a surgery and knits itself together again afterwards to regain its old shape as best it can. What is that, if not memory? Does it hurt? I mean, does the body feel hurt with no mind? Who cares? Joe spent the rest of the day reading, as Eddie rocked in his chair and stared at the wall. Wet suction and crackling sounds intruded from the other room, where Joe was eating trail mix and chewing with her mouth open. A book lay open in her lap. Eddie rocked slowly in his grandfather's ancient wooden wicker chair, Small stains and scratches formed constellations on the plaster wall, then he named each of them as they appeared to him. Lumpy Dog, just above and a few inches to the left of Smiling Man, sat staring at Boob, the central feature of the melting eye. 
forms and meaning randomly agglomerated over years of carelessly carried furniture, slightly dripping paint, and several <laughs> rudely applied flecks of dried snot. The little faces on the wall were waiting for him to make stories with them, to give them life, and fill them with meaning and with feeling. He could see out the window, where a rain so slight it could properly be called mist was soaking the world. It softened the edges of everything except the bright red of the shipping container between the nectarines. He had once thought to put a lilac bush there, with a place for a bird bath and a lawn chair. It didn't matter now. After days of indecision and mental fog, he had collected himself. When Joe had gone out to the office, he had put a few things in a bag and stowed it under the porch. If she kept up reading like this, she'd be asleep in an hour or two. Then he would go. He watched a gentle wind ruffle the leaves of those trees, and the leaves waved to him with fondness and care. His thoughts turned to cubicles decorated with ears, and a column of organ meat loosely collected. He told himself he didn't care. A few minutes later, he raised a hand in a reluctant acknowledgement towards the window. The leaves rustled back beautifully. Later, he slipped a foot out of a plaid slipper and laid it down on the cold hardwood floor. He spread his toes out and pressed them into the wood until it creaked. Toesies woesies, he whispered. Gripping the armrests, he repeated the process with the other foot and leaned forward. He let the chair rock back to its resting position slowly, with no sound, and straightened his legs. The wall seemed like a looming liquid thing before his eyes. The window was a painful collection of angles. He huffed and bent down to grab his slippers, hugging them to his belly as he snuck towards the door. Jo shifted her knees up tight against her chest and did not open her eyes as she listened to the creaking of the front porch steps. Jesse was polishing the back of a nearly finished violin when they spied Joe stalking up the lane, shoulders tight, eyes on the ground. A shiver went down their spine, and they threw down the rag and set the instrument down gently on the weather table. Joe had on her big old denim jacket with a wool lining and deep pockets, where she'd stuffed her hands as her legs hauled her forward in a stiff and hurried stride. She glanced up once at Jesse just before she reached the bottom step, and went straight in, and then she came straight out back again, and looked at them with wild eyes, and then away. Tears streaked down her face. Oh, shit. And when they spoke those words, Joe made a sound like a pig on a butcher's block, <laughs> and stood there sobbing like a broken accordion. She shoved her face into Jesse's hug as they took her into their arms, and murmured gently, Oh, shit, Joe. Oh, no. Oh, no. After a while, they moved inside. The world held its breath. Somewhere, a dog barked and wouldn't shut up. They went to the little round table in the kitchen and sat under the large painting of a magnolia flower that had hung there since before Joey could remember. Her hands wouldn't stop shaking. I watched him die, she kept saying. I couldn't help him, and I just stood there like an idiot, and I watched him die. Joey, no, no, it's not your fault. He never came home. 
Jessie ran their hand over Joey's hair as she moaned. Todd was yelling Jessie's name as he came running fast as his old legs would take him. Is Joey here? We have to go. We have to go now. He's gone. He's gone. And he's gonna... Joe and Todd looked at each other. No. We have to go after him. He's gonna hurt himself. Todd, Jessie said gently. No, we have to go after him. But Eddie was gone, and they all knew it. There was a backpack still packed under the porch. His shoes by the door. He'd just walked into the woods and the hills, and that was that. Joey had his notes in his recorder and couldn't stand to go through them yet. If he decided to come back, then he would do it. If he didn't, even if they caught up to him, they couldn't bring him home. Slowly, Todd sat down and began to weep. Jesse took out a pitcher of iced tea and a bottle of whiskey. The conversation was not forthcoming. Words weren't easy. After a while, after a few drinks, a feeling came over her, like a thousand snakes writhing in her guts. Anger. It was anger, like she hadn't felt since she was a kid. If Eddie came back, she was going to bash his head in. She was so mad, she could feel herself turning red. What the fuck, Eddie? What the fuck do you think you're doing, walking away from this? What about the fucking kids? Now I'm sitting with your fucking parents, wondering what to do about the whole fucking life that you left sitting in my lap. How's that bike treating you, Todd? I just put new brakes on her so they don't squeak so much. His smile was so, so strained. If he took the road, I could catch up with him. Joey was frozen. She'd be frozen forever if she didn't do something right now. She could feel it in her bones, like mud in her veins. She took the whiskey straight from the bottle and slammed her hand on the table. Let's give him a day's head start, and then go grab him and kick the crap out of him. Todd's face flickered through several emotions before he gently took the bottle from her. If you steal my bicycle tonight, I swear on the dead that you'll regret it. Tomorrow morning, we go. And they drank. When the bottle was gone, they got into the hard ciders in the basement, freeze-distilled less winter and tasting like brake fluid. Soon, Jesse had picked up a fiddle and Todd smacked his leg and stomped his foot and sang. Several times, people came to the porch to talk, to check on them. Joe finally threw a chair at the front door, and they stopped coming. Oh, oh, welcome home, Billy, they sang. Oh, welcome home, the summer's here. Something happened when they were so drunk Jesse couldn't play anymore, and Todd began crying quietly on the floor and Joe picked at the table with her fingernails, and the sun was coming up. In the soft light of dawn, a starling bird came in through this shattered screen door and alighted in the little round table, and it took a look at Jesse, plucking a string at a time like a zombie, and it looked at Todd, fingering a button on his shirt, staring at the ceiling. And then Joe and the bird looked at each other, and it chirped at her. He's gone. He's gone and fucked off and he's not coming home. The bird chirped three times, looked around the room again, and dove off through the kitchen window. The bright new day came crashing down on the heads of three miserable villagers. Joe could barely see straight, and it was making her nauseous. Jessie was grimly watching. <laughs> Jessie was grimly washing the puke from Todd's shirt. A wet spot on the floor showed where they'd already mopped. Good morning, indeed. 
There's eggs in the fridge or cereal if you want. I don't think anybody feels like cooking. Or eating. She'd fallen asleep on the kitchen floor. She had had a dream. Something about a bird. It sounded like Todd was still singing Welcome Home Billy in the other room. But then the voice was odd. The words had changed. She stumbled toward the porch. And stuck her head out. There, on the one remaining chair, sat a hideous monster with one leg over the other and hands like newborn mare's hooves resting on the lap of a vintage pinstripe suit. Above them, the head-like objects perched on the suit's shoulders like a deflated basketball with a face sewn on the front of it. The face seemed like it could be an old man, but she couldn't quite tell. She stared at it, wondering if perhaps she was hallucinating. And what shall we do with the drunken sailor on this fine morning? The rotted face turned to her. And how could it be so happy? Its eyes sparkled and its stretched face smiled at her. Hello, Joe. I've come to check in on Eddie. From the necropolis. Yes, of course, darling. Little Bird told me the poor boy has not been feeling well. He's gone. Her eyes were locked onto the living rot of the thing's head, desperate to look at anything else, too scared to look away. Gone? But where to, my love? If he'd gone to some sort of accident, we would have surely heard about it down at the shop. No, he's gone. He left. Yesterday, he walked out of the village in pajamas and slippers. I think he's going to kill himself. Joe had no intention of talking about Eddie to anyone. In the past weeks, she'd shrugged off several attempts to broach the subject of Eddie. Other people also, sensing the sore spot, had stopped asking. The discomfort of the hangover, however, and the grotesqueness of the walking corpse before her seemed to preclude any coyness. She would have answered the same way if she was asked, by a tree, a rock, or a shoe. It was just too odd to know what was appropriate. Eddie. The name caught in her throat. Eddie never came home. With those words spoken, she looked at the mismatched eyes of the thing before her, and hatred rolled off of her into the space between them. He went to visit you, and something hurt him. She had one hand still holding open the door, and the other had at some point become a fist. The thing's face became solemn. Its mouth cut a straight line between tight lips. She glared at it, and after a tense moment, its chest slowly rose and fell with a rasping sigh. It actually looks sad. A ponderous, disgusting, sad old man. You know what I am, and what I do. I do. I was reading about you in a book yesterday. Then you know I must find him, and bring him home. And what? Sling him over your shoulder and carry him back to the village? What are you going to do? Tie him to the fucking chair? Am I supposed to feed him every day and wipe his ass? If it is true that he no longer wishes to live... We still have to bring him home to the necropolis. Yes, Joe. Its voice was gentle. Its face held an apology. Still, Joe couldn't help but note that it looked like a rotted potato. She said she'd be right back. The door closed. She stood behind it. She started towards the kitchen. Jesse, there's a zombie on the front porch from the necropolis looking for Eddie. Oh, my God. What the hell does it want? I'll tell it to go away. No, no, I want to talk to it.
Okay. I'm gonna leave. And she went out the back door and through the pasture. Twice she stumbled over the tussocks of rushes that stuck out of the mud. This whole yard was a boggy mess all winter, only drying up in the late spring. Little mud towers marked crawfish holes, all pocking the face of it. Joe trudged out to where the rushes were thick enough to both hide her from anyone walking by and provide a nice cushion to lay on. And there, she nestled into her nest like a fledgling killdeer, and she let the grass hold her as it rustled. She stared at the clouds as they moved along. Maybe her grief would evaporate like she was drying off slowly and be carried off like the clouds. Or maybe it would sink down and be washed out by the slow water of winter's floods. The grass rustled, the clouds moved along, and Joe thought about things.